Hi, I'm Anna Clark. I'm a historian at the University of Technology, Sydney, and I have a passion for understanding the history that's all around us, in our landscapes, families and cities, as well as in history books. And I'm Tamsin Peach, and I'm director of the Centre for Public History at UTS, uh, and my interest is in the history of ideas and how they get made. And this is our first episode of Glam City. We've been wanting to make this series for a long time now, where we chat with glam people, and no, it might not be the first people to come to mind when you think of the word glam. What do you mean, Anna? Glam stands for galleries, libraries, archives and museums, and these are our cultural institutions that have access to knowledge as their mission. That's pretty glamorous. Each week we go behind the scenes with the people tasked with preserving our culture to find out about the stories often hidden in plain sight. This week, to kick us off, we have the wonderful Maggie Patton from the New South Wales State Library. Maggie is the library's manager for Research and Discovery and according to your Twitter profile, Maggie, you're into, quote, libraries, librarians, rare books, maps, digital stuff, not necessarily in that order. Looks like you're on the right show today. Welcome, Maggie. (laughs) Thanks for asking me. Uh, First off, Maggie, can you tell us a little bit about what your job at the State Library entails? Interesting question. So uh, I manage the curatorial team. So that's a team of curators who research the collections, write about the collections, talk about the collections, promote the collections, help acquire material, contribute to collection management projects, all sorts of stuff to do with the collections. And what does that mean on a day-to-day basis? On a day-to-day basis, meetings, uh, (laughs) another meeting, maybe a meeting after that. No, no, but but we do lots of meetings. But mainly that's because the team works on a whole lot of collaborative projects, both within the library and outside the library. So we're working with, say, our digital channels group or with our DX lab. We're working with the Mitchell Librarians Division on programs for scholars and researchers. We're working with external uh, committees and organisations. So it's really, those meetings are really key to how we collaborate on projects to get the collection out there and used. Being a librarian doesn't always sound glamorous. Uh, feels like it's more about books and archives and so on. But why did you become, choose to become a librarian and how did you do that? Um, well, like many people, you do a Bachelor of Arts and then you think about what you can do after that. <laughs> but look, strangely enough, um, I was going through my bookcases a few years ago and I found some children's books from when I was about seven or eight. And in the back was them, I'd put this little fake date juice, juice slip and I'd actually catalogued them. <laughs> which is really weird. But anyway, uh, look, I just You're a librarian prodigy. (laughs) I am, but um, it's not just about books. And and and, and it's a fantastic institution to work with and a fantastic collection. And and as much as it's all about meetings and, and projects and stuff... You know, every week you get to look and feel and and research and handle amazing material. So it's a fantastic place to be. And so there's there's six million items in the State Library collection. The website tells us that. And as you said, they're not all books. There's photographs, diaries, locks of children's hair, floppy disks from the 1980s. What's your favourite? Oh, that's a terrible question. You can't say that. Um, Let's see. Um... I have some fantastic um, maps in the collection, which I love. I particularly uh, love those collections that combine incredibly rare maps in the shape of a book with a beautiful binding, a beautiful provenance, you know, a beautiful hand-coloured engraving of a map all wrapped up together in this fantastic parcel. But the things that I really love are the things that have a story about how we got them to the library and who's used them. So there's lots of different favourites. 
History Week's coming up very yes. soon from the 2nd to the 10th of September. And for those of you who are super keen history fans, the City of Sydney Council has a rundown countdown timer on their website to let you know how many days, mm. hours, minutes, seconds there are until History Week. <laughs> this year it's the 20th year running and quite appropriately the theme is Australian pop culture. Maggie, how will the State Library be looking to unravel and understand the history of pop culture? Well, we have a few things um, on our plates for History Week. Uh, we have a display uh, area on Level 1 where we're going to be focusing on a selection of photographs from the collection, which has been curated by Margot Riley, and it's really looking at um, images of pop culture from the 50s and 60s, etc. So all of the, you know, the young people, the cars, the, the record players, uh, that sort of thing. So that's going to be great fun. And the other thing we're doing is, as part of a major event in History Week, there's a family history conference in Orange, and we'll be launching a project uh, with Inside History, which is a new online uh, tool for researching your photos and the age and date of your photos. So that's also something that Margot's put together, and it uses historic photos from the collection with different costumes and lets you compare your own photos and figure out the dates. So that's one of the, they're two of the things that we're doing in History Week, but we've also got a series of talks. Yeah, right. So, so I mean, you know, when we think about it, pop culture is, is, is kind of everywhere. It's mm. what I'm wearing, it's what I it had is. for breakfast this morning, but um, we don't necessarily always connect that our everyday experience of popular culture with history. Mm. Why mm. do you think that is? Well, it's something that we're living and doing every day and quite often history is seen as something significant in hindsight. So when you're living it, you know, when you're a teenager, that's just what you're going through. You don't see it as anything significant. You know, now when, uh, when I look back at what I was doing when I was at school and the records that I was listening to, uh, the way we spent our, our, our evenings or the places we went to on holidays with our friends, that was just what we were doing. And it's only later that it becomes important. And I think that's interesting. So we look at what, say, young people did in the 30s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. It's always different. But it is. It's all part of that popular culture at the time when they were living. How long do you think has to – what's the, uh, the interval of time that needs to elapse before what our lived experience is becomes history? I don't know. It's scary when you listen to music, seriously. When, you know, the 90s, that's just yesterday, but for other people it isn't. I can remember listening to music from the 60s and, and, and thinking that was incredibly, you know, old, but it's not really. Mm. People are constantly listening to it and it comes back. So I don't really know. I think that, you know, something historical can be yesterday, can be next year, and it can be last year. I guess there are increasing challenges with curating that history, particularly as we move into a digital age. I remember once going on a tour of the State Library when I was an undergraduate and um, one of the librarians came out and said that one of her favourite collections at the State Library was the ephemera collection mm. and they asked staff members at the State Library to bring in junk mail. Yes. Um, which just blew my mind as a historian that history is all around us. It is. It and, is. Yeah, and we do. We collect ephemera. So we're collecting posters from dance parties and from protest marches and from significant events that happened yesterday. Is that a challenge as we move into a digital era with, say, junk mail isn't just the junk mail that comes into your letterbox, it's the junk mail that comes into your inbox and things like Snapchat? How are we going to record for posterity these really mm. ephemeral, um, popular elements of culture? It is. It's difficult. So we have uh, a major digital collecting strategy, which we work at constantly. Uh, we're currently working on a project with CSIRO called Visi, where we're uh, collecting and archiving um, Facebook, Twitter, 
all of those sort of social media programs, but we have our own digital collecting strategy where we're collecting, you know, newspapers, magazines, all of that sort of uh, digital uh, Mm. publication now. When we're collecting, um, we've always collected the archives from historians and writers and authors, significant people. So now we're working with them to try and gather their emails and all of that other stuff that they get Mm. digitally. So it's hugely expanded the amount of stuff we have to collect. Mm. It must be tricky when people change from, say, Hotmail to Gmail and then, you know, everything It's so complicated to figure out all the different programs and how you download it. And then you've got to save it and then you get them to put it on a USB and then you've got to make sure that you can access the USB. Endless. <laughs> Glam City, what's on for history in Sydney on 2SER 107.3 and online. The What Goes Pop exhibition, which is on from Saturday the 2nd of September till Sunday the 26th of November at the State Library, has been selected from the library's photographic collections and will provide really a trip down memory lane Mm. for some and for others who are perhaps a bit younger than the rest of us. It'll open up a window into the world of what popular culture is and was. What can we expect to see? Oh, you can see some record players. You can see a little Patty, I think. You can see some interesting-looking cars, uh, some great uh, fashion. So it will be interesting. We've got some fantastic collections, and it's very hard to narrow it down. At the moment, we are working on a major new exhibition uh, space for next year. So the area that we have for the display is is not huge. Mm. So it's going to be it was narrowing it down to some key images was a bit of a task. I guess the sort of reality of those images always brings that history to life. It's like trying to explain a typewriter to a 10-year-old. Oh, it is. Look, a few months ago, we had a, a group of young students come into the Mitchell Reading Room and we show them the card catalogue and you've got no idea how difficult it is to explain a card catalogue. You know, no keywords. You know, you have to know the author, the title of the subject, and then you have to figure that one out. And then there's those added entries down the bottom of the card, which is just don't go anywhere near trying to explain what that um, other subject area. I was at uh, the University of Southern California last week and they have the library there has turned their card catalogue uh, drawers mm. into a sculpture. Oh, yes. Which sort of broke my heart. <laughs> yeah, we're thinking about turning, you know, those um, microfiche readers that you used to use in the 70s and 80s. We're going to turn one of those into sort of a bit of an exhibit. Glam City, what's on for history in Sydney on 2SER 107.3 and your favourite podcast app. Now, your diary might be bursting at the seams as there is an endless array of events on for History Week coming up. Uh, Maggie, I know the State Library has a few things planned, as well as the pop culture exhibition. What should we uh, be putting in our calendars? Well, I'm hoping that I can get to an author talk. We've got a whole series of author talks coming up. And I know that on the 7th of September, uh, Tony Jones is talking to David Marr at two o'clock in the afternoon. So I'm hoping my meeting calendar is free (laughs) then. Uh, But there are also some uh, talks being uh, done by our curators. So Alison Wishart has a talk at Canada Bay on the May Gibbs collection, uh, which should be fantastic. That's during History Week. And as I said, uh, Margot Riley will be talking at Orange if, if you want to travel out to Orange. That will be great. Uh, so there are a few talks. I think the best thing is really to go on to the What's On section of the State Library website.
Now, I hear you're launching the Portrait Detective at the State Library, which is a really exciting tool looking at old images and family photos. And we've probably all got them in some dusty mm. old box pre-digital uh, under our beds where we look at, you know, great auntie so-and-so or great uncle Norm. Um, I'm really excited about this event. Can you explain it a little bit? Well, it's a project with Inside History with uh, Cassie Mercer. And what we've done is uh, selected a whole range of photos which show uh, men's, women's, children's fashion uh, from the very earliest years of the colony uh, through to the 20th century. And then Margot Riley has um, uh, examined uh, not just the fashion but the environment around the photo and actually helped and given pointers on how to date your photographs. So it might be the, the hairstyle, the hat, the shirt, uh, the length of the dress, all of that sort of detail. So it really helps historians try and figure out what mm. those, yeah, those lost photographs that are sitting in boxes. Mm. And you know it's some aunt, but really not sure whether it's an aunt or a great aunt or a, or a great grandmother, or it's actually someone who just sold a photograph on the edge of the street. You're sort of taking the detective work out of the, the sort of reach of the family historian and giving it giving us all some help, really. That's with right. That. And you'll be able to search by keywords. So you'll be able to, able to actually look at photographs of hats or of hairdos or of um, shoes, that sort of thing. So you can narrow it down to a particular aspect of your photo that you think is the key thing. Have you used it yourself on a family photo? No, I've had a look at a few different versions. It's still being built at the moment. We're still adding the content to it. I've got a few family photos that I could try with it, which would be excellent. Uh, but no, I haven't tried it yet. I'd be really interested to use it for a family photo that uh, I remember I found a few years ago um, of a, of my great grandparents, and they uh, adopted a, a little Aboriginal girl from Central Queensland, and adoption. Um, was probably a term uh, loosely used then. It's unclear whether she was abducted from her family or not. But there they all are together mm. in the family photo. And they're, you know, dressed very similarly in the era of the time, but it would be really interesting to unpack the relationships of that family portrait through... Mm. Um, through something like this. Exactly. The other thing I think is uh, quite often we have wedding photos and the brides look really quite beautiful and ornate. But does that mean that they were from a particular level of society or was that because they, you know, went all out to make sure they had a magnificent wedding gown? That sort of thing is very difficult, isn't it? Because sometimes in the 19th century, we look at um, whether or not it's just an ordinary person having a special photo taken or whether they are someone significant and as someone significant, they're being recorded. So it's a very difficult thing. You know, people come into the library with these photographs. People come into the library quite often with these um, magnificent groups of photos that they've found um, in a rubbish tip or they've found in a shoebox. And they, they think that they, they hope that there's something significant. But I think that taking photographs became increasingly uh, popular with your family. And it may well be that it is just a family portrait and those people no longer exist, and you will never actually know who is in that photo. It's, and it doesn't have that significance unless it connects to a family or an event. That's very hard to tell people. Yes, it's a fantastic photo, and don't those hairdos look amazing? And yes, that's a beautiful lace dress, but we don't know who it is. So it's just a photograph. There's something lovely in that, though, in that it does point to the unknowability of the past. Yes. And that what we have access to is a, is a small portion of the mm. lives lived. 
And whenever we, I mean, we do a lot of digitization and we have, you know, over a million photographs in the collection. And whenever we put them online, whether it's a project or whether it's on Flickr, comments always come in correcting us about who it is and where it is and what date it is. Mm. So there's an eternal interest Mm. in that sort of thing. I mean, speaking of comments coming in from the public, I note you put out uh, a call to help name the photo dating tool. Yes, yes, (laughs) yes. And I think you settled on look data, is that right? No, no, it's called the portrait detective. The portrait, oh, okay, so how did you you settle on a name? Portrait face. Portrait face. I don't know, there were lots of things around Tinder. Oh, People really? were coming up with theories, something to do with photo Tinder or history Tinder, I don't know, whatever. Swipe right for the yeah, characters. I, I, like. I just think that, you know, it's about portraits. Let's <laughs> emphasise it's a portrait and we're detecting what's in the portrait. Another um, event you have coming up, which you mentioned earlier, is the uh, May Gibbs special, which is coming up in History Week. Generations of Australians have grown up on a staple of May Gibbs, and I remember very fondly those early gumnut books that my grandparents gave me, um, Snugglepot and Cutterpie and Remember the Banksia Men. May Gibbs stories demonstrated an early appreciation of Australian flora and fauna, and I guess they enabled people to, in a sense, see their own landscape through children's stories as they were growing up, which was hugely important during the time they were written. Her drawings were part of careful reproductions containing a really a beautiful detail of Australian natural history. What aspect of this, of her work will the State Library be examining during History Week? Well, last year we actually had a display and quite a lot of activities around the centenary of May Gibbs. And so what we normally do after a big display at the library is we then uh, turn it into a, a travelling panel display and it travels around New South Wales, which is a fantastic way to um, reach out into the community and broader New South Wales. So each time the panel displays go to various centres, uh, a curator will go out and talk and introduce the collection. In some ways, what we're focusing on is the, the main illustrations that people loved and knew very well. So Alison Wishart will be talking at Canada Bay on the 6th of September and she was the one who originally curated a lot of the material uh, last year for the um, celebrations. I think we often have conversations about May Gibbs. Last year when we had the display, it was incredibly popular and the area was full of parents and grandparents and their children. And so we often think that is that the nostalgia of the parent and the grandparent And how much does that May Gibbs material and those Mm -hmm. images interest younger Mm -hmm. people? And so I think that's what we're thinking about each time. And so how do you bring it back to life? Mm. You know, people always say merchandise. Well, you know, you you have your notebooks and your scarves and your pens and your bookmarks. But how do those stories relate to young people, young children now? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, obviously, she's a very enduring character in Australia's literary history and particularly for children's literature. Mm. But I don't sense younger kids are sort of picking up her books without that element Mm. of parental Mm. or grandparents. That's right. And they're fantastic to read to your children. Mm. How many children would actually sit down and read those May Gibbs books? It's Mm. it's interesting. Um, um, Same thing with uh, next year. It's, uh, I think, the centenary of... Norman Lindsay, Magic Pudding. Mm. And these are both artists whose collections you have a lot of material on. That's right, we do, we do. But then it's not just the children's books they wrote. May Gibbs, Norman Lindsay, all of these people have a whole other side literary 
history side to them. Uh, they've you know been journalists, they've been activists, some, you know been feminists, all sorts of things. So in fact, um, it's not just the children's story they wrote; it's the whole story about the person themselves that's really interesting. And when we do the displays, it gives an opportunity to not just talk about May Gibbs the artist, but May Gibbs the writer. Glam City, what's on for History in Sydney on 2SER 107.3 and online. Uh, so Maggie, how are you engaging students, maybe high school and, and university students in your collection? It's an interesting question because obviously we want people to use our collections and, and research them and write about them and how do we get yes students at universities to use them. Uh, so we've got a number of different programs. Uh, yesterday we had a group of 80 students who came in with Grace Caskins from the University of New South Wales. And what we did there is we got a whole selection out of, of material out from the stacks to show them the sorts of material that we have and to sort of inspire them about their research and what they can write about. So we brought out some early colonial material about convicts, um, a very rare poster of uh, Ned Kelly, uh, that fantastic story about Alexander Pierce, the cannibal mm. convict from Tasmania, that sort of real live stuff. Sorry, Maggie, so was it letters? What, what sort of, what was the nature well, of the material? Well, we had um, rare posters, we had handwritten manuscripts from um, convict times. Uh, we had um, manacles, a real set of manacles. But then we also had the later history. So uh, we had, I was talking about um, uh, the first, uh, first edition of um, Miles Franklin's My Brilliant Career. And in that she has a letter to Archibald, who was then the editor of the Bulletin, thanking him for the advice that he had given her on her first draft of My Brilliant Career, uh, talking about how she knew uh, Henry Lawson and that whole idea of why she was a writer. And, and it almost says, you know, I'm a woman um, and I know people don't take me seriously, but here I am. Thanks for your advice and thanks for taking me seriously. Uh, we got out some fantastic posters from the 1970s and 80s from the Women's Liberation Movement showing that whole um, uh, feminist trait throughout the 70s and 80s. Uh, let's see, we got out some amazing photos, I don't know whether you've seen them, of uh, 1900 when they were cleaning up the area around the rocks when plague hit Sydney. And so really it's an opportunity to show students the, the original materials, the manuscripts, the letters, the photographs, mm. the posters, uh, that sort of really rare material and say, this is real history, mm. this is the original history, and how can it inspire you to research and write and, and find out about the collections and our history. So it was a good exercise. Mm. Uh, most of those students have never been to the State Library. A lot of students find it quite intimidating to walk through the door. A lot of them don't. A lot of them just sit there forever in the reading room using the free Wi-Fi. That's fantastic. Typing away on their laptops, that's great. But it was good to get to see the real stuff. And so that's what we're increasingly trying to do. So what do they think when they get to touch and hold and smell, in some cases, these the manacles? I mean... But it's interesting, you know, they sort of stand back and you think, oh, are they enjoying this? Are they engaging? What are they thinking? And then they'll come up and they'll start asking questions and they'll ask if they can take photos and they'll, they'll get you to turn the pages and they'll say, so is this, is this the actual letter? Is this, is this the real writing? 
And, you know, you're explaining, yes, this is the real thing, and then you unfold the pages. And uh, we had some very early mug shots from the 1860s of um, people who'd been uh, arrested for, for theft and running boarding houses and things. And so they're really interested in those figures. So, And then they walk away, and then, you know, you talk to Grace, and she said, oh, they said it was fantastic. They really enjoyed it. So it's really interesting to see how they react. And getting your hands dirty on that material is such, so unusual in this day and age where we just sort of, you know, type in a Google search and something And comes you just up. use the digital. And yeah. digital's fantastic, but that real thing yeah. is a real inspiration. I remember Grace Kaskins um, relating how she had written her History of the Rocks, which is a wonderful book. And she said she went to the State Library and literally started on page one of the first mm. edition of the Sydney Gazette and just read it mm. for its first 50 years or whatever. And every page and every day, and she felt like she had become immersed in colonial Sydney. Yeah. And it's such a great opportunity yeah, to sort is. of get your hands dirty and feel mm. like you're part of the history you're studying. So we're coming to the end now, but before we go, we've got a, a little segment we're calling Glam Slam, mm -hmm. where we check our diaries and let you know what glam events are a must-see or a must-listen on our personal calendars for the next few weeks. Anna, you first. Yeah, I'm going to be heading up the Secret River to the tiny picturesque village of St Albans on the Upper Hawkesbury River for the St Albans Writers' Festival, which is in the second week of September, and I'll be hosting a panel of fabulous historians, Tom Griffiths, David Hunt and Rachel Landers. Uh, and on the Saturday night, I'm going to be treating myself to a dinner which is in, um, sampled from a menu in 1826, created by Jackie Newling, who's the gastronomer of the, um, at the Sydney History Sydney Living Museums. Um, I hope it's not tripe. I don't know what I'm getting myself into, but I'm really looking forward to it. It could be that fantastic recipe of, of kangaroo um, that you put on a stick over a fire and then you sort of run emu oil over it. <laughs> I can't wait. We've seen that quite often in the history. In, yeah, it's, it'll be great. Uh, and how about you, Maggie? What are you up to? Uh, let's see. Uh, I'm looking forward to a, a new series that we have at the library, which is starting on 27th of September, I think, and it's uh, Talking Deadly Indigenous Voices at the Library. So that'll be a series of different talks talking about Indigenous culture and people in, in Sydney. So I'm looking forward to seeing what that's like. And if people want to go to these events and others at the State Library, where can they find out about them? You can look on the website or you can come into the library and pick up our handy What's On. Great. Now that brings us to the close of our very first episode of Glam City. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the 2SER website at 2SER.com. And you can also, of course, search for us on your favourite podcast app. This podcast is made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with the support of 2SER at 107.3. And if you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at glamcity at 2SER.com. Special thanks to Maggie Patton for being our very first guest on the show. We'll see you back here next week for more Glam Conversations. 